You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, fellow bipeds. Hey, uh, episode 128. Here we are, Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Boy, oh boy, we've picked up a whole slew of new listeners this year. So, you know, some of you, you slept off your uh, your your Christmas fog, uh, the extra carbohydrates you ate at Christmas, and you woke up in January and you said to yourself, self, I need to manage my anxiety. And so you're listening to the show. I want to welcome you to the show. Um, if If you are new to the show, a couple of quick things. Sometimes it's just me. And I'm chatting about family systems theory. I'm giving you very specific tools. Uh, I'll be honest, today is what I prefer to do, which is to bring on a guest, learn from a guest. It's it's really the main reason I launched the podcast. My guest today, Dr. David Wolverton. Uh, David is a local church pastor. He wrote a book that was released in July of 2021. Some might call it the most timely released book in recent history, is called Mission Rift, Leading Through Church Conflict. Leading Through Church Conflict. If you're a church leader, this book is for you, but I'd also say a lot of my listeners are church goers. Your volunteers and and local leaders in your church, you may not be on staff. This book is as much for you as well. What's great about it, we'll get into the book, is how David shows us how conflict can be redemptive or destructive and how you can lead both ways. I was also really excited to bring David on because he's a fellow clinical pastoral education nerd. Uh, He and I both did trauma chaplaincy in our long dead youth. Uh, For David, longer and deader than mine back in the 1980s, uh, for me in the 1990s. But uh, David did a whole chunk of clinical pastoral education. And there's a particular tool that I've asked David to talk to us about that I don't think we've discussed much at all on the podcast. So we'll get to that too. So with that very long introduction, David, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Oh, it is such a joy to be here, Steve. I've uh, I've listened to you. It's it's neat to see. I know your leader, your your listeners are are not seeing you face to face, but but it is a gift for me to do this. This has been on my uh, my my uh, bucket list for for quite a while, and and so I'm I'm really thrilled to be here with you. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm I'm excited too. I think you have written the book. You know, you and I were chatting before we hit record. And both of us in local church leadership just saying this last couple of years has just been uh, pretty brutal. Uh, you you literally wrote the book on church conflict. What has been the hardest thing for you in the last couple of years? Wow. Yeah. The reality is this book has uh, has been in my mind and in my heart and in my teaching for probably a couple of decades now. Um, more actively teaching it since 2009 in workshops for clergy. Um, but but when I finished writing the book and we were going through the editing process, the pandemic hit. And so I had to reevaluate what I was putting out there in light of um, were we were we addressing in these principles things like when maskers and anti-maskers clash in the local church? when vaxxers and anti-vaxxers clash in the church? And, and what do we do when you, when you have a group of individuals who are uh, highly anxious about COVID and that anxiety 
bridges over into irrational anxiety because there is as you know there's there's the rational anxiety that's a good thing to pay attention to it's telling us a story and then then there's the irrational and what do you do when when those clash and so the the book in its final editing kind of was in the crucible of COVID, and and i think what emerged through it uh, was challenging to me to have to live out those principles in real time yet again, but doing it in a cultural uh, scenario that I wasn't prepared for. And I don't think we as a culture were prepared for. Um, but but the reality is the church is still the church and, and the mission is still the mission. And regardless of what we're facing, I, I just knew this the the principles that that we're writing about here in Mission Rift really do apply. We just have to figure out how to translate it in the midst of of this this cultural uh, nuance that has just hit us all. Uh, but I but I do think um, I I think that it forced me COVID forced me to face into yet another deeper layer of my own anxiety as I was navigating everybody else's anxiety. Um, and again, you know, I've listened to enough of your podcasts and read your, your, your words enough to know that you get this. Um, my anxiety needed to be dealt with in order for me to be present with everybody mm. else's anxiety. Mm. And when I yeah. didn't have enough answers, I've, I've been around church conflict long enough, that decades, that doesn't bother me as much now as it did. But COVID, I had to navigate my own emotions connected to that um, and my wife's emotions, my family's emotions, their own anxiety in the midst of unknowns and to be a leader that's non-anxious in the midst of everybody, everybody else's anxieties. That was a real struggle. I knew by bringing on a fellow chaplain that we would get right where I was hoping you would get, David, because... You know, what you've given us right out of the gate here is really the cardinal rule is first take your own pulse, first put mm. the oxygen mask on your own face. And um, what I love is that is that you've done all of this study and yet you still had to go deeper and do that work. None of us graduate. None of us get above these tools. Here's something I'd like to explore with you. I noticed with myself that particularly in 2020, uh, I started to um, exaggerate and generalize. So if if four people used to come out of the woodwork and give me a hard time, then in 2020, 24 people came out of the woodwork and gave me a hard time. But the way I made meaning out of it is I would use language like, no matter what I do, half the church is upset. But what's actually true is most of the church were great. But because six times more than usual were giving me troubles, I was catastrophizing. I wonder if you could uh, talk us through what's going on in me to do that? Like what's anxiety doing to me that I have to um, catastrophize or blame or make these blanket statements? And where are you seeing that happening with, with leaders today? Yeah, what, what you just described, I went through too. Um, probably the best way for me to kind of analyze it, pull, pull back enough, go to that 10 or 30,000 foot vantage point to analyze myself, uh, in, in CPE, we, we, uh, we were taught, you got to develop that third eye, 
uh, that looks at yourself and your interactions. And so I've tried to live that way. Uh, so, so really what I've, what I've tried to do with myself and what I would share with you uh, as you, you do that self-reflection is, is I had to learn how to apply grace to myself so that I could apply grace to others. Because um, my, my initial reaction, if I'm truly honest, was it ticked me off. <laughs> uh, other people's behaviors and reactivities were, were ticking me off. They were ang- getting me angry because they weren't thinking. And and the reality is my anger was actually my stuff. Yeah. It, it was my way of saying, well, am I, um, am I detaching from this too much? Am I going too clinical? Am I, am I feeling like I'm going to be judged uh, by virtue of how I mediate these different camps that were coming on? Uh, yeah, all of that is true um, to a degree. Because I am a, a the senior leader of this this organization, and and people are watching me, um, but I I also had people tell me, well, you wrote the book of it, you should be able to solve this, and I was like, well, that's that's easy to say, it's it's not that clean cut and dry, um, but but the coping mechanisms that kicked into gear really were telling. You know, and everything that that I was doing and the catastrophizing that you you described, I, I think that's our our mind's way of trying to get a handle yeah. on how to cope with this unknown. And as we were trying to figure it out, our reactivity, our reactivity as leaders kicked in the gear until we could get a handle on it. And once we did get a handle, even even though that handle had to be fluid, uh, and flexible because of the nature of what what we're dealing with, uh, it gave us at least something to hold on to, and that 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 handle was important, so that we could then enter into the fray of everybody else's stuff, and not lose who we are in the midst of it all. You're really inviting us to what I think is something we just can never be reminded of enough is that it's exactly acceptable to be a human being in ministry. And I think, I think we do forget that. I think we expect ourselves to be superhuman. And then what I noticed when I analyzed myself is, is some of those 24 people, 24 is an arbitrary number. I don't don't know how many there really were. They had forgotten that I'm a human being. I remember one person you know, some of my congregation listen to this podcast, so I always want to be careful. But I remember one person calling me very hot out of the gate on the phone. Boom. Like, how is there's no natural courtesy that happens in an exchange. It's just firing at me. And um, this particular person, I'll name him David, he was feeling accused by a church email we sent about mm-hmm. masks. Um, mm-hmm. And so all these assumptions and then coming hard at me. I think the challenge, David, is when do you take it and when do you show somebody the impact of their behavior? Like not in a vindictive way, but when do you say, listen, uh, can we go back to this basic courtesy of treating each other like a human? I, I've done both. Sometimes I'll just take it like a punching bag and it's part of the job. Um, but sometimes I've also risked telling somebody that hurt. Like, I, I think you forgot I'm a human being. And it tends to go two ways for me. Sometimes it crushes that person because they 
because I'm a pastor, they've put me on some kind of a spiritual magician kind of platform, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so yeah, the idea yeah. that, that I would be hurt by them devastates them. And then other times it's really helped where, where it actually moves us toward each other. Do you have any guidance on how to navigate that? Sure. Um, I, I, I wrote about this in my book. I've been dealing with this for a while. I teach this as a principle. Um, I had to, I had to use it as a filter for myself going through exactly the same kind of scenarios that you just described. I, I was getting individuals on both sides of the equations that were judging me as not leading well enough. Uh, you, why aren't you allowing us to come back into in-person worship? Why are you demanding we we uh, make we wear masks? And uh, and others saying, why aren't you demanding that we wear masks more often? And 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 there was there was. This was, uh, in effect, what I've been calling a no-win scenario. Mm, there you go. Yeah. So no, no matter what you choose to do in leadership, you're going to anger or disappoint somebody or some group. Uh, it's a no-win scenario. And so, so, so what I've what I've been struggling with in my own devotions as I process through all of this is that you know I, I even went to God saying. You know, why are you putting the church, why are you putting your people into no-win scenarios? And and mm. the answer that I seem to be getting right now in my spirit is uh, no-win scenarios for the follower of Jesus. No-win scenarios uh, have something in common. Namely, there's no win. <laughs> but But that's not the point. The point of the no-win scenario for the follower of Jesus is it's a test of character and faith. You know, what what are we going to base our our behavior on uh, if not what we say we believe? And if we can't boil it down to the basics of what Jesus teaches about love, if we're not going to live out loud the love of the command of the mission that, that Jesus calls us into, um, then, then, you know, our witness is going to be at stake. Uh, the no-win scenario, there is no win. So don't focus in on trying to come up with a solution. There may not be a solution. So in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the no-win, what I've been teaching um, for, for years, uh, I started to use for myself. It's a basic formula. And the formula is listen, look, acknowledge, and refrain. Listen, look, acknowledge, refrain. So when individuals come to me and they're all over the place, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen actively, but I'm going to listen non-defensively. You know, this pushed against, you know, my 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 challenge for myself is uh, growing up, I, I was always the defensive individual. I was always taking it as a personal challenge to my leadership or, or to my character. And so what it what dawned on me through CPE especially is people's reactions are really their responsibility. And so I need to I need to listen because that's a gift of honor. You know, we are called to honor one another in love. So so I want to listen, but I also don't want to take on what is not mine. But if I see every situation as a discipleship moment, then what that person is bringing to my table is actually about 
an opportunity for them to go deeper in their relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so if I listen and then look at the scenario, the big picture, and then acknowledge with them, hey, I can see that this is this is a struggle for you. Um, tell me a little bit more about why this is impacting you this way. I can feel your anger. What's behind all of that anger? You know, why now? Why are you why are you uh, struggling with this now? And then help them to reframe it, reframe it to what could be. You know, yeah, we we are dealing with situations that none of us have faced before. What could we do based on what we do know rather than what we don't know? As I'm listening to you, David, what keeps kind of screaming in my head? Because you're as a systems theorist myself, you're using so many trigger words that I want to jump on, the reframing, the double bind. Yep. And, um, but what, what I think I want to focus on is what you're really saying in Mission Rift is leaders, you have to get comfortable with pain. Yes. Because you make an interesting um, challenge for us in the book to welcome conflict as a essential pathway of spiritual growth for you and your congregation but yes. I think most of us, we so want to graduate from conflict. Sitting in it is so hard. Um, so talk to us a bit about how do we as leaders, particularly those of us who are thin-skinned, I would describe myself that way. I get my feelings hurt pretty easily. What are just a couple of simple tools that you use to sit in that discomfort long enough to actually open up long-term change? Yeah, that's great. And and you and I are more like them than not because most most of the reasons why I got into conflict and and went on for a doctorate in conflict, you know, who does that, right? I mean, right. What's who, wrong with who you? Who does that? <laughs> yeah. um, who who goes for five units of CPE, clinical pastoral <laughs> education? Who who does that to themselves? Yeah. Um, the reason I did that was because I was so freaked out by conflict. I was so paralyzed by conflict. And, and I'm the person who, I'm a very creative individual. Uh, if, if I hit an obstacle, I'm going to try to go around the obstacle. If I can't go around, I'm going to go above it. If I can't go above it, I'm going to go below it. If I can't go below it, uh, I'm going to start ramming that obstacle and, and do my best to try to punch a hole through it. If I can't do that, I get frustrated, and then I shut down. And when I shut down, you know, from, you know, a former... Uh, uh, podcast of yours, I, I go into detachment. Mm. Uh, I start disengaging and I go into apathy. And I don't want to live in apathy. I don't want to live my life so detached from life that I don't enjoy uh, the, 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 the full range of what God has in store for me. So what I had to do is I had to come to terms with, how do I do that? And here's, here's what I choose to do. And this is what I try to bring out in the book. We have to ask different questions. Ask different questions of the conflict situation. So if I am am facing into a conflict that's going on in front of me, regardless of what the, the topic is, and regardless of who's involved, if I were to face into that conflict to say, this conflict is actually a symptom of something else uh, going on, yeah. what could it be that's really going on? Yeah. What could it be that is causing this symptom to emerge 
now. So mm-hmm. the questions I would ask would be, why is this happening? And why is it happening now? What could be going on in the background, whether that's, you know, interpersonal or personal or corporate? Why is this emerging now? And it could be as basic as, you know, the person's having a bad day and and they trust you enough. They're not going to say it this way, but they trust you enough to to be the receiver, the right. you know, the the toilet bowl, the bedpan of their their dumping. They they just need to vent it out. They need to get it all out, and they trust you enough to to not take personally what they're doing, mm-hmm. even though it feels personal. Yeah. It could be as basic as that. Yeah, um, you remind me of when more... when we had young kids and and they'd play at someone else's house and we'd go pick them up and the mom or the dad says, oh, your kids are just amazing. They even (laughs) offered to help with the dishes and then they come home and melt down. Like Mm. all of their good behavior was run out. And then because they, like what you're saying, they trust us as their parents. They then trust us with their tantrum. That's a wonderful, I think that was a, that's a very helpful way for us who do take it personally to really see it in our congregation. This would be this would be the only um, positive reframing that I've been able to come through the, the years uh, with respect to detachment. Um, now I, I'm totally in agreement with you and what you've shared in prior podcasts about detachment. So totally in agreement. But the, but at the same time, what we have to do as leaders is we have to emotionally distance ourselves sufficiently from the reactivity of the other person or persons mm-hmm. so that we cannot take personally um, what what is being shared to the point of being able to analyze it enough and then respond to it as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, way too many of us, and I, and I, I lived this way for decades, way too many of us as leaders start taking it personally and and we allow our anxiety to overrule our leadership. So the, the reason that, the reason that in the book I've actually changed, um, changed the framework from conflict management to conflict leadership is because in reality, we try to manage the things that cause us anxiety. Yeah. yeah. But that's not what God is calling us to do as leaders of, of God's movement. That's oh, so good. Uh, David, I, you know, I, I, I think people, obviously the things you're sharing are so in line with what we talk about on this podcast. I, I hope people are hearing the good news and what you're saying. Um, and, and just the simple idea that uh, it's, it's, perfectly fine to be a human being as a pastor. And what David is offering for us is a way to not just survive, but to thrive in leadership. I can testify personally that if I'm not actively working these tools that David's sharing with us, I get petty and vindictive, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I definitely move into self-pity, which is a form of self-righteousness. Um, you know, who, who around here is noticing how hard I have it, this kind of stuff. And all of that, <laughs> all of that is nonsense. Uh, it's, it's human, but, but the other thing, um, I appreciate it is you've, you've proven this through the last couple of years and 
the problem with what we're talking about, David, is we always make it sound easier than we find it to be ourselves, right? Like, oh yeah, we speak about it as if, oh, this is just what we do. But I'm at my best. I get a five out of ten in this yeah. in this game. Um, I'd like to shift gears. I guess I just want to say to our our listeners that, um, particularly for those of you you're facing 2022, you know, here we are in February as you're listening to this or, or later. And you really are wondering, what's this year bringing? Uh, David has given us a framework in this book. Like it really is. He's not writing as a theorist. He's actually offering a path. And the longer I do this work, the more I value people that actually provide a path for us. So so in Mission Rift, David does lay out uh, steps, the, the six stages and so on. So for those of you who want to uh, manage conflict, I would highly recommend you actually read this book with the people you are in conflict with, particularly if they are valuable people in your church, by which I mean key leaders or or something like that. But go through it together because the gift of systems theory is it does not let you blame another person. It yeah, forces man. everybody to take responsibility for themselves. David, I want to pivot to a hard right and talk about chaplaincy. Tell sure. us about your first experiences working in a hospital. <laughs> so I was greener than green. I, I was in in the midst of of my seminary training, and um, I, I had I had grown up, Steve, wanting to be a doctor. So so my my ever since I was five years old, I wanted to be a doctor. And and as I grew up uh, going to high school, that shaped itself out. I wanted to be either out of the next uh, for those of you of your listeners who are old enough, the next Marcus Welby. MD. Yeah. Um, I, I needed to, uh, I needed to shape myself around the, the family doctor who did it all, or I was going to be a pediatric cardiologist. Um, and just love kids, loved the heart, was going to do that. And then somewhere in the midst of, of going into college, the, the Lord interrupted my life and, uh, called me to ministry. And so I, you know, I started, uh, going into, um, you know, that mode of what, what do I major in, in college? What, what do pastors study? I, I have no idea. I just no idea. So I, I picked two, I picked religion and psychology and I, and I did a dual degree in that. And so when I got to seminary, I still had this opportunity. I wasn't required to do CPE, um, like some of my, my, uh, fellow students were. Uh, but but I chose to do it because I thought, hey, this will give me an opportunity to connect uh, my medical interest and that part of my past with ministry. And so um, so I started CPE, not not knowing much about it other than the war stories that I was hearing from some <laughs> of my other students. You know, they they tear you apart. They tear apart what you what you believe. And then you you come out of that uh, totally changed person and hard hearted. And so I, I didn't know exactly what to expect. But so my my first uh, week was orientation week. And my my last name, Wolverton, um, I was the last person alphabetically in the list. And so what they did was they started. Uh, with the A's in my group, and they started assigning different parts of the hospital uh, to to each student. And uh, everybody was given the opportunity to choose, but because I was last, my choice was what was left. 
And what was left was what everybody else did not want. And that was the emergence room and trauma bay. Mm. And so that was assigned to me. Um, and so as they took us on the tour, this, this was this, just pure vulnerability here. As they took us on to the tour to the emergence room and trauma bay, uh, this whole group, we had two main groups of students. So about uh, 12, 14 of us uh, were on this tour in the emergency room and trauma bay uh, of the hospital. Uh, the, the one uh, ER nurse who was leading the tour was describing some things that they would you know, encounter that we as, as uh, chaplains would encounter. And, and she said, I can just picture this. She said, you know, some of these things might cause some of you to faint. And just then one of our fellow students dropped down oh, and she thought he was joking. Yeah. Um, just imitating it, but he went right out. He just dropped. We didn't even see anything. She was just describing <laughs> it. He went right out. And there was this wave of anxiety that kicked in the gear for the rest of us. And I remember feeling a little bit anxious, but I'm going, I love this stuff. Everything you're describing is just, you know, keying right into my interest. And, and so that was day one. Um, by that weekend, uh, they reversed the alphabet for who would be on call first. And so I remember my, my, uh, this, this was a Friday afternoon, my supervisor, uh, handing everybody left. It was five o'clock. Everybody was leaving my supervisor, a great, great lady. She was just, uh, you know, a wonderful, hard, hard person, hard supervisor. She, she put the pager into my hand and she said, well, here you go. And I said, I stood there and I said, what do I do if, yeah. if it goes off? You didn't teach me anything. What do I, yep. what do I do? And she looked at me and she said, if it goes off, respond to it. And we'll talk about it on Monday. And so she turned around and left. And I stood there for, for what felt like an hour. It was probably just a minute and a half, uh, just staring at the pager going, don't go off, don't go off, don't go off, don't go off. And, and the Lord was gracious that, that night, it wasn't until two in the morning I was roaming the halls because I couldn't sleep, hmm. and my pocket pager went off, uh, and I was called to the medical intensive care unit, MICU, and and I walked up to the nurses unit, and she said, um, "There's a there's a man who is about to die. He's on life support. Um, he's he knows he's going to be dying. I forget what the issue was." Uh, but uh, we know we know nothing about their, his faith journey. He has no family. Um, would you go in? And so I walked in. The room was darkened. Uh, he was intubated, um, meaning he had a breathing tube in, in his throat. Um, and uh, as soon as I walked in, the room that had been filled with doctors and nurses and individuals who were just kind of in that moment, I introduced myself as the chaplain on call. They literally just all exited the room. That's right. And I yeah. was stuck in the dark with myself and this patient. And I had no idea what, what, what to do. And so I remember walking over to him, looking at his eyes. He, he could not speak. He was, his eyes were open. He was, he was conscious. He was aware. And he knew that he was going to be dying. They had told him all of that. And, and because he was alone, nobody could tell us anything. 
Yeah. So I, I remembered thinking to myself, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, Lord, what do I do? And so in that moment, I read the 23rd Psalm, figuring if he's Jewish, I got that covered. I, mm. I did the Lord's Prayer, figured if he's Catholic or Protestant, I got that covered. Uh, anything else beyond that, I, you know, I have no idea. And I was, I was panicked. I just didn't know what to do in that moment. I wasn't trained. Yeah. Finally, I could see the terror on his eyes. And that just spoke to me. And I remembered looking in his eyes, grabbing his hand and saying to him, look, I know you don't know me and I don't know you. I don't know what your faith is, but I just want you to know you're not going to die alone. I'm going to be here with you and we're going to do this together. Steve, in that moment, and I'm sure you've seen it too, in that moment, his face changed, mm. his eyes calmed down, and I started just reading, reading scripture to him for the next, it took about three hours. Mm. Gradually, his heart started to slow down, and he started to change. Through it all, this was this was in a, uh, a relatively Catholic neighborhood, so there was a crucifix up on the wall uh, in front of him, and I kept watching his eyes looking at that crucifix, and um, you know, I I gradually saw him get to a place of peace, and he passed away. You know, up to that point, some of my biggest fears about facing death was that, you know, I, I saw TV, I saw these horror shows, you know, you know that was the image that I had of a dead right. body. They, they, right. they turned purple and, you know, he, God just put me into the, the position to watch and be with a man who, who died and that radically changed my life. Yeah. Now from, from that point forward, every time I would walk into the emergency room, um, you know, I was called on to to be with individuals as they died. So I've I've been with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people in that same moment. Yeah. Uh, so much so that that you know I, I felt like I was used. I was being used by God in pivotal transition moments. Yeah, that was that was my first week of CPE. Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm, you know, I'm having all kinds of transference listening to you. We, so many CPE students have the same experience of being plunged in and feeling really terrified that we're going to do something wrong. It feels like the stakes are so high. I, I know for me, uh, I was pretty young and, and not, I just was not aware of myself. Uh, and so for me, what I did is plunge me into about a 10 week intense journey of being forced to notice that I'm actually afraid that, mm. um, that when I'm in front of someone dying, I'm afraid of dying or, mm. um, and I think for me, I, I wouldn't blame my Bible college. I, I just think it was also my up, my upbringing and the church tradition and my stage in life. I didn't have permission to, to have human feelings. And what I love about what you described is, I think the gift of chaplaincy is how you really do discover that that the greatest gift God gives to those people is your full human self. It's not your ability to quote Philippians and say the right thing. It's it really is. Can I be 
fully present to these people through this terrible situation. Or sometimes what's true is this very beautiful situation. Like my experience with end-of-life care, even when there was a lot of grief in the room, is it was a holy moment. There was something sacred happening. And uh, if I was not aware of myself, I'd step on it. You know, like I'd, yeah. I'd step on the sacred holy ground. Um, so, so David, one of the most famous or infamous tools of CPE is the verbatim. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd explain to us what that is. So in a nutshell, a verbatim is a teaching tool. It's a learning tool. It's an opportunity for us to recall as, as reflective individuals, as best we can, how the conversation unfolds and more especially where we were in the midst of that conversation, mm. um, emotionally, tangibly, physically, spiritually, where, where are we in the midst of the exchange? And so it's a, a verbatim um, from, from my vantage point is the, the teaching tool that equips what I referenced earlier in the podcast uh, was that third eye. It's the ability to gain and stretch and increase our capacity for developing self-awareness. And why is that important? Because self-awareness is going to help us be intentional about our leadership and our presence. Um, if, if let's, let's be honest, uh, if we're highly anxious in any given moment, no matter how we present ourselves on the outside, we're going to lead based on that anxiety. It's going to come out. So, so developing that third eye, developing that sense of self-awareness is actually going to help us to be more intentional uh, about our leadership. And so the verbatim uh, is an invitation to, as best we can, recall the details of the conversation, not just verbally, but tangibly. That's, that's where actually, Steve, this is a great question and great segue because the formula I gave earlier about uh, listen, look, um, acknowledge, and, and reframe. That's all based on what I've learned from doing verbatims. So you want to listen. You want to acknowledge uh, what you've heard tangibly, but you also want to look at what's going on in the environment. Um, in, in theological language, for those of, of you who are pastors or theological students, you know, this is about cultural exegesis. It's mm -hmm. about exegeting the room, exegeting the, the background, exegeting the context <clears throat> in order for us to, to really gauge what's going on and then being able to do some reflections based on what that exchange tells us, um, asking different questions. Why did I say that in that moment? What was going on in my in my feelings when when I said this? Was I actually dismissing what they were feeling because I'm uncomfortable with that? You know, here the patient wanted to talk about their dying and I was like, well, we can talk about that later. You're not going to you're not going to be dying. Well, who's the one who's uncomfortable in that conversation? Yeah. Oh, that was me. That that uh psychological or psychodynamic or psycho-emotional reflection uh, comes up in tandem with a theological reflection because we're, yeah. we're pastors, we're called. So, so as, as we do a verbatim from that vantage point, we're going to ask ourselves spiritual questions or, or theologically framed questions 
to help analyze ourselves and, and deepen our own sense of self-awareness. That's a nutshell of a verbatim. Yeah, wonderful. And, and if, if you're having trouble picturing what this is, uh, listeners, is it's an actual essay that you write where you are writing, the reason it's called a verbatim is you're trying to remember literally every word that everyone said in the room. And it might surprise, you might be like, oh, there's no way I could do that. But you'd be blown away at how vivid your memories are if you just take 20 minutes to reflect quietly. And so it's an actual essay that you write. It's, I don't know, David, probably took anywhere from one to four hours to write up. Yeah. I, I remember because I did 55 to 60 verbatims in the year that I was a chaplain. We did one a week and then sometimes we'd do an extra one for our supervisor. Yep. Um, and uh, I remember occasionally I'd want to hack the verbatim by finding, uh, I'd, I'd flip it. Let me find a visit that's brief. <laughs> so I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't yep. have to spend too much time writing it up. But the real power of it is is in the reflection that you get as you write it up and then the reflection that you're given by your group of peers as you present it to them. So at least in our context, it was a 90-minute presentation. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd print it out and give a copy to every person in my small group. And um, I'd read it to them like a play. Mm -hmm. And then they would ask highly invasive questions <laughs> to try to help me get to the bottom of myself. Um, so this kind of is segues. Um, a, a lot of my listeners know that, that I offer all manner of resources. And actually, um, I've, I've shot a set of videos and have verbatim templates on Capable Life, mm. www.capablelife.me. And so I want to speak to those of you particularly who are organizational leaders, and you're looking for some kind of a staff development path that works on emotional and spiritual health. That's what I've designed. In a nutshell, what David's talking about, clinical pastoral education, I guess you could call Capable Life CPE for dummies, essentially. I just reached back into my chaplaincy training. And when I went to grad school, my family system theory training, and I've built a, an experience, but it's all broken down into eight to 12 minute videos. It's very uh, tactical. Uh, every video has a tool. And one of the modules you can go through as a group is verbatim. I would not recommend it be your first module. Um, but once <laughs> you've gotten a few things under your belt, if you'd like to know more about it, I offer a monthly Zoom, a free monthly Zoom, where I just show you this turnkey solution. Uh, of course, it does cost money, but it's actually very affordable. And there's a ton of bonuses in there. For example, if 10 or more in your group sign up, then every video I offer, you can legally display to any group, a parenting group, uh, small group leaders. So we really are trying to make it where this is a turnkey solution for staff development, but also for your, whether it's a business or a congregation, or, you know, I've got a lot of school teachers, for example, that listen in. This is something you can go through together in 10 minute increments. So just go to my website, um, www.stevecusswords.com. You'll see an option there to sign up for the next Zoom where you'll, you'll be with me and we'll, uh, we'll go through and show you all the elements together. David, we've gone on a little long. I'm going to move quickly through the gauntlet. Lucky you, uh, you don't get the full uh, proctological level gauntlet. But um, <laughs> let's just talk about the gauntlet of anxiety. 
Uh, since we were talking about verbatims, I, I think the gift of it is that it shows you the end of yourself. Where do you keep running into yourself as a leader? Where do you keep finding yourself saying, oh, I'm doing that same thing again? Yeah, what a, what a great, great question. So there's, I could probably spend about an hour describing you, uh, all of these things that I run into myself. Uh, I, you know, a, a joke, uh, I'm five foot five in stature, but my shadow is about eight and a half feet. Mm. Um, there are, there are things in who I am as I, as I kind of navigate through all of, of my journey in life. Um, I, I'm an intentional person in my, my discipleship. I'm an intentional person in my devotions, but the things that keep coming up over and over again is uh, I'm wired to be defensive when my character and my integrity are challenged. Right. Yeah. I've learned how to navigate so well in other people's conflicts. I can mediate with the best of them. I'm trained to mediate. But when, when the attack is on my personal character or integrity, my immediate default is to get defensive. Mm. And that's, that's a constant. And I'm, I'm still kind of unpacking what that's rooted in. Mm. Um, but I, but I've been able, and we don't have time, but I've been able to track that back to some things that happened to me in childhood. Uh, so, so I've been able to get that far, but those are the things that continue to trip me up in my leadership, my reactivity when my character and integrity are challenged. It's really good. And, and I am just going to take the risk of, um, doing a little coaching for our listeners. Cause I, I, I love the way David just now very succinctly uh, was able to clarify, here's what gets me reactive. You might be listening to this and thinking that what David's trying to do is now eliminate that reactivity from his life. What he's actually trying to do is to stop it from getting in the way of connecting to people. So just a very simple coaching tool for our listeners. Uh, you you might have related to what he said. I think all of us, when our character is misaligned, it's very human to get reactive. It's It's unlikely that you'll end up like the Dalai Lama and someone's misaligning your character, and there you are like a freaking pot-smoking hippie. That's probably not going to happen. What you can do is learn to name it to tame it. Mm -hmm. And I've actually done this with people. When they come after my character, I've actually named to them something. And here's what I'll say. Something I've learned about myself is I get defensive when I feel like my character is being attacked. So you might be feeling me being defensive right now. I really want to hear what you're having to say, but I just wanted to name it so it wouldn't get between us. Mm. Right. So that's so really a lot of what the work we're doing is not so much becoming a perfect human being. It's 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 getting unstuck. That's 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 what we're doing there. So, David, a, a lot of things we've kicked around here is family of origin. Just give us one trait from your family of origin that's been an asset and one that's been a liability in your leadership. Yeah, that that's so good. That is so good. All right. So um, if I had to nail down one. Um, both both of my parents are very highly intuitive, and so I inherited that gift. Um, I also inherited their their uh, high degree of mercy and compassion. Um, that I think has just been. I, I love that. I love being able to uh, spend time with an individual, and within just a few moments, uh, I'm I'm able to tune in on an intuitive level. To, to things that are going on with them. I do this in groups as well. They've just, 
uh, the, just a, a framing of what's going on and, t- and tuning in to people really quickly. So, so the, the way that this trait, which is a good trait, trips me up is that my high mercy and my intuition tends to draw me in to jump to conclusions and want to fix. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I try to fix or when I try to take responsibility for everybody else's stuff and take it on myself, that, that leads me to like really tough seasons of compassion fatigue. And as I mentioned earlier, getting to the point of detachment or, or apathy, I just don't want to go there. But, but that's, that's the root connection, you know, a gift, a really strong gift and, and trait that I have uh, uh, not only inherited but developed can actually trip me up as a shadow side mm. as well. That's wonderful. Thank you. And then as we close, when in your life recently have you felt most fully and completely loved? Oh, recently. That's, this, is, this is the challenge, Steve, because of COVID. Uh, my... my I don't know if, you, if you're into the language of love thing, mm, yeah. um, but but my primary language of love is touch. Touch is not just physical for me. It's also verbal. So, so I know that's kind of weird, but, but I am fully loved. I feel most fully loved when somebody I care about embraces me, either with a hug or with their words of love. And so, you know, naturally, we are in a, a season of our culture where touch has to be judicious, especially when we're in our roles. Um, and, and so I, I gauge that and I guard that very judiciously for the sake of, of uh, creating a safe environment for all people. But for those of us whose language of love is, is touch, it creates an environment, especially with the isolation of COVID, it creates an environment of separation and distance where I have had to find creative ways of interpreting love within this time of social distancing. David Wolverton, the book is Mission Rift, Leading Through Church Conflict. David, if someone's been listening to this and they'd like to engage you further for consulting or something, how, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, David Wolverton, that's D-A-V-I-D-W-O-O-L-V-E-R-T-O-N.net. DavidWolverton.net, there's a link on there uh, to get a hold of me. Uh, you can uh, easily do that. Um, I would be thrilled to connect. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 